Section twenty six of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Janice in Georgia. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One, by James Boswell. Section twenty six. Seventeen sixty three, Etat fifty four. In seventeen sixty three, he furnished to the poetical calendar published by Fox and Wotey a character of Collins, which he afterwards engrafted into his entire life of that admirable poet in the collection of lives which he wrote for the body of English poetry, formed and published by the booksellers of London. His account of the melancholy depression with which Collins was severely afflicted and which brought him to his grave is, I think, one of the most tender and interesting passages in the whole series of his writings. He also favoured Mr. Houle with the dedication of his translation of Tasso to the Queen, which is so happily conceived and elegantly expressed that I cannot but point it out to the peculiar notice of my readers. This is to me a memorable year, for in it I had the happiness to obtain the acquaintance of that extraordinary man whose memoirs I am now writing, an acquaintance which I shall ever esteem as one of the most fortunate circumstances in my life. Though then but two-and-twenty, I had for several years read his works with delight and instruction, and had the highest reverence for their author, which had grown up in my fancy into a kind of mysterious veneration, by figuring to myself a state of solemn elevated abstraction in which I supposed him to live in the immense metropolis of London. Mr. Gentleman, a native of Ireland, who passed some years in Scotland as a player and as an instructor in the English language, a man whose talents and worth were depressed by misfortunes, had given me a representation of the figure and manner of Dictionary Johnson, as he was then generally called. And during my first visit to London, which was for three months in 1760, Mr. Derrick the poet, who was gentleman's friend and countryman, flattered me with hopes that he would introduce me to Johnson, an honour of which I was very ambitious. But he never found an opportunity, which made me doubt that he had promised to do what was not in his power, till Johnson some years afterwards told me, "'Derrick, sir, might very well have introduced you. I had a kindness for Derrick, and I am sorry he is dead.' In the summer of 1761 Mr. Thomas Sheridan was at Edinburgh, and delivered lectures upon the English language in public speaking to large and respectable audiences. I was often in his company, and heard him frequently expatiate upon Johnson's extraordinary knowledge, talents, and virtues, repeat his pointed sayings, describe his particularities, and boast of his being his guest sometimes till two or three in the morning. At his house I hoped to have many opportunities of seeing the sage, as Mr. Sheridan obligingly assured me I should not be disappointed. 
When I returned to London at the end of 1762, to my surprise and regret I found an irreconcilable difference had taken place between Johnson and Sheridan. A pension of two hundred pounds a year had been given to Sheridan. Johnson, who, as has been already mentioned, thought slightingly of Sheridan's art, upon hearing that he was also pensioned, exclaimed, "'What? Have they given him a pension? Then it is time for me to give up mine.' Whether this proceeded from a momentary indignation, as if it were an affront to his exalted merit that a player should be rewarded in the same manner with him, or was the sudden effect of a fit of peevishness, it was unluckily said, and indeed cannot be justified. Mr. Sheridan's pension was granted to him not as a player, but as a sufferer in the cause of government, when he was manager of the Theatre Royal in Ireland, when parties ran high in 1753. And it must be allowed that he was a man of literature, and had considerably improved the arts of reading and speaking with distinctness and propriety. Besides, Johnson should have recollected that Mr. Sheridan taught pronunciation to Mr. Alexander Wedderburn, whose sister was married to Sir Harry Erskine, an intimate friend of Lord Bute, who was the favourite of the king. And surely the most outrageous Whig will not maintain that whatever ought to be the principle in the disposal of offices, a pension ought never to be granted from any bias of court connection. Mr. Macklin, indeed, shared with Mr. Sheridan the honour of instructing Mr. Wedderburn, and though it was too late in life for a Caledonian to acquire the genuine English cadence, yet so successful were Mr. Wedderburn's instructors and his own unabating endeavours, that he got rid of the coarse part of his Scotch accent, retaining only as much of the native wood-note wild as to mark his country, which, if any Scotchman should affect to forget, I should heartily despise him. Notwithstanding the difficulties which are to be encountered by those who have not had the advantage of an English education, he by degrees formed a mode of speaking to which Englishmen do not deny the praise of elegance. Hence his distinguished oratory, which he exerted in his own country as an advocate in the court of session and a ruling elder of the Kirk, has had its fame and ample reward in much higher spheres. When I look back on this noble person at Edinburgh, in situations so unworthy of his brilliant powers, and behold Lord Loughborough at London, the change seems almost like one of his metamorphoses in Ovid, and as his two preceptors, by refining his utterance, gave currency to his talents, we may say in the words of that poet, Nam vos mutastis. I have dwelt the longer upon this remarkable instance of successful parts and assiduity, because it affords animating encouragement to other gentlemen of North Britain to try their fortunes in the southern part of the island, where they may hope to gratify their utmost ambition. And now that we are one people by the Union, it would surely be illiberal to maintain that they have not an equal title with the natives of any other part of His Majesty's dominions. 
Johnson complained that a man who disliked him repeated his sarcasm to Mr. Sheridan without telling him what followed, which was that after a pause he added, However, I am glad that Mr. Sheridan has a pension, for he is a very good man. Sheridan could never forgive this hasty, contemptuous expression. It rankled in his mind, and though I informed him of all that Johnson said, and that he would be very glad to meet him amicably, he positively declined repeated offers which I made, and once went off abruptly from a house where he and I were engaged to dine, because he was told that Dr. Johnson was to be there. I have no sympathetic feeling with such persevering resentment. It is painful when there is a breach between those who have lived together socially and cordially, and I wonder that there is not, in all such cases, a mutual wish that it should be healed. I could perceive that Mr. Sheridan was by no means satisfied with Johnson's acknowledging him to be a good man. That could not soothe his injured vanity. I could not but smile, at the same time that I was offended, to observe Sheridan in The Life of Swift, which he afterwards published, attempting, in the writhings of his resentment, to depreciate Johnson by characterizing him as a writer of gigantic fame in these days of little men, that very Johnson whom he once so highly admired and venerated. This rupture with Sheridan deprived Johnson of one of his most agreeable resources for amusement in his lonely evenings, for Sheridan's well-informed, animated, and bustling mind never suffered conversation to stagnate and Mrs. Sheridan was a most agreeable companion to an intellectual man. She was sensible, ingenious, unassuming, yet communicative. I recollect with satisfaction many pleasing hours which I passed with her under the hospitable roof of her husband, who was to me a very kind friend. Her novel, entitled Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph, contains an excellent moral, while it inculcates a future state of retribution. And what it teaches is impressed upon the mind by a series of as deep distress as can affect humanity in the amiable and pious heroine who goes to her grave unrelieved but resigned, and full of hope of heaven's mercy. Johnson paid her this high compliment upon it. I know not, madam, that you have a right upon moral principles, to make your readers suffer so much. Mr. Thomas Davies, the actor, who then kept a bookseller's shop in Russell Street, Covent Garden, told me that Johnson was very much his friend and came frequently to his house, where he more than once invited me to meet him. But by some unlucky accident or other he was prevented from coming to us. Mr. Thomas Davies was a man of good understanding and talents, with the advantage of a liberal education. Though somewhat pompous, he was an entertaining companion, and his literary performances have no inconsiderable share of merit. He was a friendly and very hospitable man. Both he and his wife, who has been celebrated for her beauty, though upon the stage for many years, maintained an uniform decency of character, 
and Johnson esteemed them, and lived in as easy an intimacy with them as with any family which he used to visit. Mr. Davies recollected several of Johnson's remarkable sayings, and was one of the best of the many imitators of his voice and manner while relating them. He increased my patience more and more to see the extraordinary man whose works I highly valued, and whose conversation was reported to be so peculiarly excellent. At last, on Monday the 16th of May, when I was sitting in Mr. Davies' back parlour, after having drunk tea with him and Mrs. Davies, Johnson unexpectedly came into the shop, and Mr. Davies, having perceived him through the glass door in the room in which we were sitting advancing towards us, he announced his awful approach to me somewhat in the manner of an actor in the part of Horatio when he addresses Hamlet on the appearance of his father's ghost, "'Look, my lord, it comes!' I found that I had a very perfect idea of Johnson's figure, from the portrait of him painted by Sir Joshua Reynolds soon after he had published his dictionary, in the attitude of sitting in his easy-chair in deep meditation, which was the first picture his friend did for him, which Sir Joshua very kindly presented to me, and from which an engraving has been made for this work. Mr. Davies mentioned my name, and respectfully introduced me to him. I was much agitated, and recollecting his prejudice against the Scotch, of which I had heard much, I said to Davies, "'Don't tell where I came from!' "'From Scotland!' cried Davies roguishly. "'Mr. Johnson,' said I, "'I do indeed come from Scotland, but I cannot help it. I am willing to flatter myself that I meant this as light pleasantry to soothe and conciliate him, and not as an humiliating abasement at the expense of my country. But, however that might be, this speech was somewhat unlucky, for with that quickness of wit for which he was so remarkable, he seized the expression, come from Scotland, which I had used in the sense of being of that country, and, as if I had said that I had come away from it, or left it, retorted, "'That, sir, I find, is what a very great many of your countrymen cannot help.' This stroke stunned me a good deal, and when we had sat down I felt myself not a little embarrassed and apprehensive of what might come next. He then addressed himself to Davies. "'What do you think of Garrett?' He has refused me an order for the play for Miss Williams, because he knows the house will be full, and that an order would be worth three shillings. Eager to take any opportunity to get into conversation with him, I ventured to say, "'Oh, sir, I cannot think Mr. Garrett would grudge such a trifle to you.' "'Sir,' said he, with a stern look, I have known David Garrick longer than you have done, and I know no right you have to talk to me on the subject. Perhaps I deserve this check, for it was rather presumptuous in me, an entire stranger, to express any doubt of the justice of his animadversion upon his old acquaintance and pupil. I now felt myself much mortified, 
and began to think that the hope which I had long indulged of obtaining his acquaintance was blasted. And, in truth, had not my ardor been uncommonly strong, and my resolution uncommonly persevering, so rough a reception might have deterred me forever from making further attempts. Fortunately, however, I remained upon the field not wholly discomfited, and was soon rewarded by hearing some of his conversation, of which I preserved the following short minute, without marking the questions and observations by which it was produced. Note. Mr. Murphy, in his Essay on the Life and Genius of Dr. Johnson, page 106, has given an account of this meeting considerably different from mine, I am persuaded without any consciousness of error. His memory at the end of near thirty years has undoubtedly deceived him, and he supposes himself to have been present at a scene which he has probably heard inaccurately described by others. In my note, taken on the very day in which I am confident I marked everything material that passed, no mention is made of this gentleman, and I am sure that I should not have omitted one so well known in the literary world. It may easily be imagined that this, my first interview with Dr. Johnson, with all its circumstances, made a strong impression on my mind and would be registered with peculiar attention. End of note. People, he remarked, may be taken in once who imagine that an author is greater in private life than other men. Uncommon parts require uncommon opportunities for their exertion. In barbarous society, superiority of parts is of real consequence. Great strength or great wisdom is of much value to an individual. But in more polished times there are people who do everything for money, and then there are a number of other superiorities, such as those of birth and fortune and rank, that dissipate men's attention and leave no extraordinary share of respect for personal and intellectual superiority. This is wisely ordered by Providence to preserve some equality among mankind. Sir, this book, the elements of criticism which he had taken up, is a pretty essay, and deserves to be held in some estimation, though much of it is chimerical. Speaking of one who with more than ordinary boldness attacked public measures and the royal family, he said, I think he is safe from the law, but he is an abusive scoundrel and instead of applying to my Lord Chief Justice to punish him, I would send half a dozen footmen and have him well ducked. The notion of liberty amuses the people of England and helps to keep off tedium vitae. When a butcher tells you that his heart bleeds for his country, he has, in fact, no uneasy feeling. Sheridan will not succeed at Bath with his oratory. Ridicule has gone down before him, and, I doubt, Derrick is his enemy. Derrick may do very well as long as he can outrun his character, but the moment his character gets up with him it is all over. 
it is however but just to record that some years afterwards when i reminded him of this sarcasm he said well but derrick has now got a character that he need not run away from i was highly pleased with the extraordinary vigour of his conversation and regretted that i was drawn away from it by an engagement at another place i had for a part of the evening been left alone with him and had ventured to make an observation now and then which he received very civilly so that i was satisfied that though there was a roughness in his manner there was no ill-nature in his disposition davies followed me to the door and when i complained to him a little of the hard blows which the great man had given me he kindly took upon him to console me by saying don't be uneasy i can see he likes you very well a few days afterwards i called on davies and asked him if he thought i might take the liberty of waiting on mr johnson at his chambers in the temple he said i certainly might and that mr johnson would take it as a compliment so upon tuesday the twenty fourth of may after having been enlivened by the witty sallies of messrs thornton wilkes churchill and lloyd with whom i had passed the morning i boldly repaired to johnson his chambers were on the first floor of number one inner temple lane and i entered them with an impression given me by the rev dr blair of edinburgh who had been introduced to him not long before and described his having found the giant in his den an expression which when i came to be pretty well acquainted with johnson i repeated to him and he was diverted at this picturesque account of himself dr blair had been presented to him by dr james fordyce at this time the controversy concerning the pieces published by mr james macpherson as translations of ossian was at its height johnson had all along denied their authenticity and what was still more provoking to their admirers maintained that they had no merit the subject having been introduced by dr fordyce dr blair relying on the internal evidence of their antiquity asked dr johnson whether he thought any man of a modern age could have written such poems johnson replied yes sir many men many women and many children johnson at this time did not know that dr blair had just published a dissertation not only defending their authenticity but seriously ranking them with the poems of homer and virgil and when he was afterwards informed of this circumstance he expressed some displeasure at dr fordyce's having suggested the topic and said i am not sorry that they got thus much for their pains sir it was like leading one to talk of a book when the author is concealed behind the door he received me very courteously but it must be confessed that his apartment and furniture and morning dress were sufficiently uncouth his brown suit of clothes looked very rusty he had on a little old shrivelled unpowdered wig which was too small for his head his shirt neck and knees of his breeches were loosed his black worsted stockings ill drawn up and he had a pair of unbuckled shoes by way of slippers 
but all these slovenly particularities were forgotten the moment that he began to talk. Some gentlemen, whom I do not recollect, were sitting with him, and when they went away I also rose. But he said to me, Nay, don't go. Sir, said I, I am afraid that I intrude upon you. It is benevolent to allow me to sit and hear you. He seemed pleased with this compliment, which I sincerely paid him, and answered, Sir, I am obliged to any man who visits me. I have preserved the following short minute of what passed this day. Madness frequently discovers itself merely by unnecessary deviation from the usual modes of the world. My poor friend Smart showed the disturbance of his mind by falling upon his knees and saying his prayers in the street or in any other unusual place. Now, although rationally speaking, it is greater madness not to pray at all than to pray as Smart did, I am afraid that there are so many who do not pray that their understanding is not called in question. Concerning this unfortunate poet, Christopher Smart, who was confined in a madhouse, he had at another time the following conversation with Dr. Burney. Burney. How does poor Smart do, sir? Is he likely to recover? Johnson. It seems as if his mind had ceased to struggle with disease, for he grows fat upon it. Burney. Perhaps, sir, that may be from want of exercise. Johnson. No, sir, he has partly as much exercise as he used to have, for he digs in the garden. Indeed, before his confinement he used for exercise to walk to the alehouse, but he was carried back again. I did not think he ought to be shut up. His infirmities were not noxious to society. He insisted on people praying with him, and I'd as lief pray with Kit Smart as any one else. Another charge was that he did not love clean linen, and I have no passion for it. Johnson continued, Mankind have a great aversion to intellectual labor. But even supposing knowledge to be easily attainable, more people would be content to be ignorant than would take even a little trouble to acquire it. The morality of an action depends upon the motive from which we act. If I fling half a crown to a beggar with intention to break his head, and he picks it up and buys vittles with it, the physical effect is good. But with respect to me, the action is very wrong. So religious exercises, if not performed with an intention to please God, avail us nothing. As our Saviour says of those who perform them from other motives, Verily they have their reward. The Christian religion has very strong evidences. It, indeed, appears in some degree strange to reason. But in history we have undoubted facts against which, reasoning a priori, we have more arguments than we have for them. But then testimony has great weight, and casts the balance. I would recommend to every man whose fate is yet unsettled Grotius, Dr. Pearson, and Dr. Clark. Talking of Garrett, he said, he is the first man in the world for sprightly conversation. 
When I rose a second time he again pressed me to stay, which I did. He told me that he generally went abroad at four in the afternoon, and seldom came home till two in the morning. I took the liberty to ask if he did not think it wrong to live thus, and not make more use of his great talents. He owned it was a bad habit. On reviewing, at the distance of many years, my journal of this period, I wonder how, at my first visit, I ventured to talk to him so freely, and that he bore it with so much indulgence. Before we parted, he was so good as to promise to favour me with his company one evening at my lodgings, and, as I took my leave, shook me cordially by the hand. It is almost needless to add that I felt no little elation at having now so happily established an acquaintance of which I had been so long ambitious. My readers will, I trust, excuse me for being thus minutely circumstantial, when it is considered that the acquaintance of Dr. Johnson was to me a most valuable acquisition, and laid the foundation of whatever instruction and entertainment they may receive from my collections concerning the great subject of the work which they are now perusing. I did not visit him again till Monday, June 13th at which time I recollect no part of his conversation except that when I told him I had been to see Johnson ride upon three horses, he said, "'Such a man, sir, should be encouraged, for his performances show the extent of human powers in one instance, and thus tend to raise our opinions of the faculties of man.' He shows what may be attained by persevering application." so that every man may hope that by giving as much application, although perhaps he may never ride three horses at a time or dance upon a wire, yet he may be equally expert in whatever profession he has chosen to pursue. He again shook me by the hand at parting, and asked me why I did not come oftener to him. Trusting that I was now in his good graces, I answered that he had not given me much encouragement, and reminded him of the check I had received from him at our first interview. "'Poo, poo,' said he, with a complacent smile, "'never mind these things. Come to me as often as you can. I shall be glad to see you.' I had learnt that his place of frequent resort was the Mitre Tavern in Fleet Street, where he loved to sit up late, and I begged I might be allowed to pass an evening with him there soon, which he promised I should. A few days afterwards I met him near Temple Bar, about one o'clock in the morning, and asked if he would then go to the mitre. "'Sir,' said he, "'it is too late. They won't let us in. But I'll go with you another night with all my heart.' A revolution of some importance in my plan of life had just taken place, for, instead of procuring a commission in the foot-guards, which was my own inclination, I had, in compliance with my father's wishes, agreed to study the law, and was soon to set out for Utrecht to hear the lectures of an excellent civilian in that university, and then to proceed on my travels. Though very desirous of obtaining Dr. Johnson's advice and instructions on the mode of pursuing my studies, I was at this time so occupied, shall I call it, or so dissipated, 
by the amusements of london that our next meeting was not till saturday june twenty fifth when happening to dine at clifton's eating-house in butcher row i was surprised to perceive johnson come in and take his seat at another table the mode of dining or rather being fed at such houses in london is well known to many to be particularly unsocial as there is no ordinary or united company but each person has his own mess and is under no obligation to hold any intercourse with any one a liberal and full-minded man however who loves to talk will break through this churlish and unsocial restraint johnson and an irish gentleman got into a dispute concerning the cause of some part of mankind being black why sir said johnson it has been accounted for in three ways either by supposing that they are the posterity of ham who was cursed or that god at first created two kinds of men one black and another white or that by the heat of the sun the skin is scorched and so acquires a sooty hue this matter has been much canvassed among naturalists but has never been brought to any certain issue what the irishman said is totally obliterated from my mind but I remember that he became very warm and intemperate in his expressions, upon which Johnson rose and quietly walked away. When he had retired, his antagonist took his revenge, as he thought, by saying, He has a most ungainly figure, and an affectation of pomposity unworthy of a man of genius. End of section 26